0: I want to invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles or or your uh, electronic devices or however you do that to uh, Psalm 84. And I do, um, it really is a joy to be worshiping with you today. As as you turn a page um, and begin a new chapter in the storyline of Cross of Grace Church, though change happens to us and around us all the time, we can easily underestimate the intensity of the emotions that accompany those changes. And so now, though Pastor Nate is thoroughly familiar to you, Cross of Grace Church, starting today, officially, I think, you have a new senior pastor And that translates into a new identity for Nate and for this church to grow into. And since this new identity naturally represents a lot of unknowns at this point in time, I believe it's fitting at a time like this to to really acknowledge our tendency, the, the tendency of each and every one of us to place our hope and confidence and dependence on a man of flesh and blood to perform wonders. And the the particular wonder, I think, that we have a tendency to expect is for him to work this magic, the magic of nurturing, the ongoing development of this church while keeping everything that we love the same, (laughs) to take fresh initiative while making sure nothing drastic changes. To lead the church forward into the future, while seeing to it that things remain the way they were. Right? That mindset, and it is so normal. (laughs) It's so normal. It is a form of insanity uh, that requires awareness and repentance and a radical God-centeredness to resist. And so on behalf of my friend Nate, And for the sake of the cross-centered gospel in which we've put our hope, I want to exhort you to receive God's gift of a new senior pastor as a gift and not the giver himself. (laughs) Pastor Nate is God's servant and yours, not God. And I know that he... And God (laughs) would want us all to keep that straight, right? So I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read Psalm 84. I don't know if you do this, but if you're able, would you please stand? This is an expression of our regard, our reverence, our, our desire to hear the Lord speak to us. So the psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O oh God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O oh God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Mm -hmm. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. It's God's word. May he bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of it. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, And king over all. We know that the wind and the sea and the earth and its rotation and the seasons and the barometric pressure and the temperature all obey you. And the microorganisms obey you. You are King and Lord over all, and we marvel at your authority and your lordship and presidency over all things, and including our hearts and souls and lives and every day of them. And we bow before you and we worship you. And we pray, O oh God, that as you assert yourself among us today, we we would be mindful, we would see evidence of your glorious, glorious grace. Speak, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As Nate said, my wife and I have three sons, the youngest of whom was married just this past May. And so for, for now the second time in our lives, we are empty nesters. <laughs> we enjoyed it a lot the first time. And... Um, We're starting to get used to it again uh, the second time. And um, I suppose it's the way I'm uniquely wired, but I have been surprised yet again by the emotional effect of still another major milestone in life. It seems like just yesterday that... We dropped that youngest son off at college you know, for his freshman year. He's 18 years old and all cool and independent and self-reliant. And I, I, We knew at that moment that we had officially entered a whole new season of our lives. But, but now, this past May, he gets married and this reality of the, the last one, now out on his own leading a household of his own. That's a big thing. It's a big thing. And it's at times like these that you tend to wax philosophical, right? There we were now in an empty house together, and we would look at each other, still sometimes do, um, and (laughs) sigh and ask questions like, you know, how did we do? Uh, Think he's okay? You know, is he going to be all right? Is he going to be a good husband? Did we do it right? Are we adequate? And now, here you are in the midst of a life transition. You know, the sending out of significant members of your family It's like a son getting married or becoming empty nesters. These are not the kind of changes. Well, they're not the kind of changes that the rest of us initiated. (laughs) And still they send these massive ripple effects through people's lives that in turn change the nature of relationships, change the people that we're relating to, change who you look to for leadership, you look to for counsel and on and on and on and on and on. And it might be fair to anticipate that there are days ahead when you will occasionally look at one another and sigh (laughs) and uh, say things like, are we going to be okay? Are we ready for this? Uh, Am I adequate? Are you adequate? Uh, Those are the questions that we ask ourselves at times like, This And they are a window into how we view the storyline of our lives. As uh, as my wife and I have waded through transition more than a few times, um, we have been helped by God's word in Psalm 84. Because the psalmist strikes a chord with anyone whose thoughts and emotions... Are swimming in a sea of introspection and question marks about life. So, so how does the word of God in Psalm eighty four help us make sense of our respective stories, particularly in unsettling times when there's kind of a disturbance in the way everything that we've been used to for so long, or times of change, times when you feel like, you know, you can, I kind of lost my equilibrium here. And I want to suggest five things. First, Psalm 84 provides us with a a framework so that we can understand the plot. The writer of Psalm 84 is going somewhere. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those Whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, verse 7, they go from strength to strength. So you get the picture, right? That psalmist is going, and where he's going is to where God is. Look at verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. So the psalmist is going somewhere, and where he is going is to where God is. And I don't think he's necessarily talking strictly or limiting this sense of direction about where he's going as to where God is ultimately, like heaven. And though he does use temple worship vocabulary such as the courts of the Lord or God's altars or God's house or appearing before the Lord in Zion, I'm not sure that he's limiting himself to going to where God is in some particular sense like going to church or going to a worship meeting. Rather, the writer is going to where God is throughout life. That is, all of life, all of life is an opportunity to go to where God is. He's passing through valleys and deserts. He enjoys places where there are springs and pools. He encounters times of weakness and times of strength. He experiences both pain and comfort as well as times of joy and times when his dependence on God is tested. But the aim and the governing direction, the trajectory, is always God and God's presence. God is the destination, so he's going in God, going in God. And the reason the psalmist's orientation is God is because he has been so profoundly and decisively affected by the experience of the glory and majesty of God's presence. Look at verses one and two again. "How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? He knows it's lovely. <laughs> he knows it because he's been there. And that's why he says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And then verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And then verses 10 and 11, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. In other words, since... The psalmist has tasted and seen and experienced the incompleteness of God's presence. Seeking the pleasure of enjoying God's presence is his aim, it's his orientation in all of life and through all of life. So, how does this shape our uh, sense about sending out one of our best? <laughs> and starting over and stepping into a new role or becoming empty nesters or facing uncertain health issues or dealing with wearying circumstances going on all around us with no relief in sight. When our, um, when our youngest son got married in May and moved out, something, something changed. Our, our relationship with him at the very least, changed. He, he's now making decisions on his own or together with his new wife. He's not hearing me say, hey, did you pay that bill? Or uh, did you make that phone call? Or do you remember to take the trash out? Or put your laundry away. Um, and, and about three dozen other micromanagement issues. <laughs> In other words, the, the, the baby of the family no longer exists as the baby in our family. That identity is done. Our family isn't the same as it was. Something that used to be is gone. And that's sad. It has taken time for us to process that and to grieve it in a way, right? And any of you who have ever walked through any major transition knows that with changes like this there's this inescapable period of emotional limbo life now is clearly not the way it was before and what it's going to exactly be like is still emerging and in that time between it's not completely comfortable. That's why there's a nearly universal distaste for change. Cross of Grace Church, listen. There are people and relationships and leadership styles and personalities that have defined you for many years. Not all of them, maybe not most of them, will define you from now on you will make emotional relational practical shifts and you will adjust and sooner or later a new reality emerges since may our relationship has already taken on some adjustments. It, it's, it's different when it's just us, and I, th- I think I speak for both of us. There, there's evidence that we're growing. Um, there are signs our relationship is going someplace new. Uh, new breadth, new depth, new understanding, new awareness. You know, we're alive And um, because we're alive, we are always, by nature, it's true of all of us that are alive, we're we're always adapting, we're always growing, we are always stretching and then reattaching and becoming, um, pardon my vocabulary, evolving. uh, But it's true. And the joy and peace we all experience in that Process depends on an orientation that understand, understands that God has written the storyline of our lives in his book before we ever existed. Psalm 139, 16 says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So your joy and peace in the days and the years ahead will depend on a worldview that understands that our lives are God's workmanship. We are his workmanship, that Greek word poema. <laughs> we are his epic poem that he wrote in advance. He's already written and therefore his purpose for you and for me today in the going, in the riding the waves of transition is to get to Him and to His presence and to go deeper into the loveliness of His dwelling place in these life transforming seasons. That's the powerful, powerful, creative effect of transition. We can live through seasons of change. Because they open us up in deeper ways to the nearness of God. So, we say it again. <laughs> Relocations, new jobs, changing roles, school-aged children, new friends, new rhythms, new leaders. You know, they, they set off significant and not just a few unforeseen ripple effects in our lives the, the level of your involvement shift some of you I'm, I'm, I'm guessing not just Nate have already here quit doing certain things that you used to be doing and have started doing different things or will be some of you the more you engage with this church will probably do things maybe you've never even done before in a church And as you shift, relationships are going to be different. People that you used to connect with a lot might not cross your path the way they used to. This will inevitably affect you at the emotional level. Things won't seem right. That's because things aren't the same. Things that used to be will end while other things will come into existence and there will be emotional and relational Deaths and births. That's life. The pilgrimage goes on going. And the fruit of it, for some, God willing, for many of you, will be God. More of God. Deeper and more profound encounters with the presence and power of God than ever before. Perceiving life and God and transitions this way, it it anchors us and puts things in a proper and biblical perspective. But more than just simply understanding them the plot, it also puts things in perspective so that we can steward the pain. We can steward the pain. In verses 5 through 8, the psalmist writes, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O oh Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So this valley of Baca, it, it means valley of tears, or uh, more literally, valley of weeping. And since it is tears that make this valley a place of places, springs, we understand that it probably it's a dry place. It's a desert, and and notice it doesn't say if they go through the Valley of Baca, or in the event that they happen to go through the Valley of Baca, no, it says, as they go through the Valley of Baca, that means that tears and weeping will come. Pain will eventually and inevitably touch our lives. And depending on our view of God, we'll either steward it or waste it. Now, when our orientation is seeking the joy of God's presence in all of life, recognizing that he has already written the storyline of our lives, including, including the desert, including the pain, then we're less likely to waste it. And that's because our so-called valley of weeping is simply another access point to deeper experience of the presence of God. Right? Those who want to die in the hill of personal autonomy and self-determination, they stumble when they encounter painful things. They get angry when things don't go the way they planned. They get ticked when... You know, their expectations are frustrated or things don't go the way they hope. To them, God didn't come through. He failed to be their, for lack of a better term, good luck charm. (laughs) When in fact, God wrote that failure or God wrote that fall or God wrote that disappointment into their story to provide an opportunity to go and meet him in the strength of his presence. But it's in the desert and the deep valleys where God shapes us. And it is in suffering and in pain where the heart and soul is enlarged. He excavates our inner being so that our capacity to know and behold the glories of Calvary and the sweetness of God's nearness is enlarged. And that enlarged heart capacity then increases our ability to, and this is the third thing, to experience the beauty. In verse 6, the psalmist says, As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The desert becomes an oasis. <laughs> I knew some of you would get that. <laughs> One beauty turns into another beauty. Beauty is a gift from God to us for our sanity. Where do you go for beauty? Art? Music? Literature? Maybe, maybe it's nature. Wherever it is, we engage with beauty through our hearts. And the deeper we engage with God in our pain, the more our hearts are enlarged to experience the pleasure and the sanity and the sweetness of beauty. Is it any surprise... That the poets, or the authors, or the composers, or the artists that we love the most, appreciate the most, connect with the most, are those whose lives were touched the deepest by pain. The greatest pain in the universe was suffered by Jesus as he endured God's wrath for our sin, and I believe that's why the gospel, in its heart-humbling way, is really That's the doorway to engaging beauty in ways we simply would not, could not otherwise. Psalm 84 also frames reality so that we're able to, and this is the fourth thing, engage with mystery. Here's what I mean Proud people tend to have all the answers. And therefore, proud people need to have all the answers. But broken people, people who've had their dreams die and have shed tears of grief, they don't have all the answers. They're like the ones that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, you know, the poor in the spirit, the broken. They're the ones who've fallen. They're the ones who recognize their capacity to control every situation was an illusion. They've discovered that their rules didn't always work. Where did their paradigms and their, all their planning lead them? Because times do when we learn that we just can't fix everything. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the fallen. Blessed are the broken because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who are uniquely positioned to enter into and engage with and to encounter the active presence and presiding presence of God more than anybody else. I think 80... Psalm 84 puts it well in verse 7 when it says, they go from answer to answer. Right? (laughs) No. (laughs) They go from solution to solution. No. Exclamation point to exclamation point. No. But they do go from strength to strength. They are learning on a daily basis to get and to live on what God gives today. Just give me sufficient grace for today. That's all I need. More of God, more hope in his faithfulness, more confidence in his promises, more pleasure in his presence for today. And finally, in our respective seasons of transition, Psalm 84 gives us the foundation that we need to connect in community. And and here's what I mean. Psalm 84 was written as, it's, it's known as a communal psalm. And so this psalm would have been sung by the people of God as they drew near together to the presence of God and and in our English Bibles there's this little title or heading that says the composition of this psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah you see that now if you're familiar with it the story of Korah is not a pleasant one God had called and anointed Moses as the leader of the people of Israel but there's this dude Korah and he was a chronic pain in Moses' neck. He opposed Moses. He criticized Moses. He grumbled privately and publicly about Moses. And when God had completed the work that he wanted to do in Moses, through this pain caused by Korah, God said, okay, my purpose in you and through you is done. So, bye. <laughs> and according to Numbers 16, the ground opened and swallowed up Korah, and Korah was not seen or heard from again. Now, that's the kind of thing that would leave an impression on you, right? Right? God revealed his power and his presence and his justice and he poured out his wrath on this grumbler in a very tangible way for all to see and for none to forget. But what may be even more unforgettable is that God also made his power and presence manifest by showing unspeakable mercy and by saving the sons of Korah from his wrath. And so through the generations, generations and generations, every time God's people gathered to seek God's presence together, they sang together communal songs such as Psalm 84. And when they sang this psalm and saw that little heading, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah, it was a reminder of how God had saved those who had written this psalm from his wrath. He saved them from his wrath. A mediator stood between them and God's wrath. And every time they sang this psalm, they would see the name and they'd remember how God had removed their shame and remember how God had purchased their access into his lovely and most desirable presence. And they could sing together how the Lord God was a son and a shield. And they would come to that line in verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. As you, O God, hear our songs, as you hear our prayers when we're crying out to you, we know that we have a shield. We have a mediator. So behold our shield. Look at him. Look at our shield. Look on the face of your anointed. Our sins are now on our shield. Our shame is on your anointed. And now all we know is favor and honor. And they would be affected by God's grace and mercy again and again and again. And that gospel connected them into community with generations. For the same mediator who saved the sons of Korah was their mediator. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 84 functions to connect the people of God together in a common story. A story that connects us into a spiritual community of souls saved from wrath. And this reality of participation in this gospel-centered, gospel-begotten community, that's a heart and soul-sustaining gift for us no matter how confusing is our suffering, no matter how wearying is our desert, no matter how earth shaking are our transitions, because no good thing do you, O oh God, withhold from those who are in union by faith with your anointed one. O oh Lord of hosts, commander of the armies of heaven, author and finisher of the storyline of our lives, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Thank you, God. And may you pour up this grace and mercy on this dear spiritual community. In Jesus' name, amen.